Hey, podcast fam, Eric here. And if you're an affiliate marketer or looking to monetize your online presence, you need to know about ShareASale.com. ShareASale is not just an affiliate network. It's your gateway to a world of opportunities. With thousands of high-paying affiliate programs across various niches, ShareASale connects you with top brands ready to collaborate with content creators like you. Imagine earning commissions for simply sharing products you love. Whether you're into fashion, tech, or lifestyle, Share a Sale has got a partnership waiting for you. Ready to turn your passion into profits? Head over to milwaukeemafia.com slash share a sale and sign up today. It's free, it's easy, and, it, and it's your ticket to unlocking a new revenue stream for your business. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Milwaukee Mafia. I'm Eric Walterkins. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, I don't, do you have anything to banter about for a little bit before we start the episode, or should we just get right into it? Gosh, you know, I don't I don't know that I do. We might just have to get right into it. <sighs> All right, well. Are you, are you have anything? I don't have anything. Well, then let's do it. So, All right, what do you got for us? Okay, so this time we're going to talk about Ralph Capone. Really? Yeah. No relation to Al Capone? Oh, totally related. (laughs) Okay. Totally related. So, are you Uh, ready? I am ready. Okay. Much has been written on Al Capone, but this is not about him. (laughs) Wonderful start. Yeah. (laughs) He had numerous interesting siblings, and one of them has a connection to Wisconsin. That's his brother, Ralph, sometimes known as Bottles. (laughs) <laughs> Although no one seems to agree why they called him Bottles. I was just going to ask, do we know why they called him Bottles? There's different theories put forward, um, but I'm not even sure if anybody even called him Bottles or just the newspaper called him <laughs> Bottles, because that's a stupid nickname. <laughs> Ralph was born January 12th, 1894, which that makes him the older brother of Al. Their parents were Gabriel and Teresa. Some say that Ralph was born in one sea. Others say he was born in a different city, but either way, everybody agrees he was born in Salerno, the the province of Salerno in Italy, which is not Sicily, to be clear. He is not Sicilian. Right. We've talked about that before. I believe that right. Al Capone wasn't Sic- right. Sicilian either. Ralph arrived in America with his mother uh, in 1895, so he was just a baby. He was in, He lived in Brooklyn. He attended the public schools there, but he dropped out after the sixth grade. Um, and he went to work as a messenger boy. Pretty exciting stuff. So, based on what you just said, was Al Capone never actually was not born in Italy at all? He was no, born he once. was he was born here. Okay, uh, well, not here, here, but he was born in America. Yeah, he, he wasn't born in our podcast studio. No, <laughs> he was born in this room, <laughs> this very room. In 1915, Ralph married Florence. They had one child together, also named Ralph. At that time, they lived. They still lived in Brooklyn, and Ralph Sr. worked as a paper cutter. He apparently worked there for about five years, and then he sold insurance, of all things. But the couple did not get along very well, and according to Ralph, she took little interest in their child, she took little interest in their home, she didn't cook, she didn't clean, and she was a terrible wife. <laughs> One day, she left their son with some neighbors, and she abandoned the family completely. Ralph sued for divorce. He was granted the divorce, and his mother was given custody 
of Ralph Jr. So the grandmother is raising Ralph Jr. This is a really dumb question. Yeah. But you say sue for divorce? Yeah. Do we still do that today? Technically, yes. Okay. They I don't just, think we phrase it that the way. way but, but it's still the same process. It's just they, mm. they say, said back then, suing. Okay. Right. So Ralph went to Chicago to join his brother Al in February 1922. His first job was tending bar at a roadhouse. He and Al and some other guys shared an apartment. Ralph later claimed that he went into the beer business independent of his brother. He said, no, 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 this was my idea. I'm not working for Al. But not many people believed him, especially because he continued to live with his brother uh, for most of the time he was in Chicago. So they were pretty close. When machine gunners from the north side of Chicago fired at his car, it was driven by his chauffeur, Sylvester Barton. Police believed that they mistook Ralph for his brother. Others believed it was a warning. Barton, the chauffeur, was slightly injured when a bullet grazed him. So you don't want to be a chauffeur to the Capones. So I, I take it at this point in time, where we're at right now, Capone was pretty well known for his mafia stuff. Yeah, he got he got pretty big pretty fast, and there were a lot of different groups in Chicago. Like, he didn't have the whole city. There were, you know, maybe five different yeah. gangs or something. But yes, he definitely was a powerful force. After the squeaky clean William Deaver became mayor of Chicago, John Torrio, who was Al Capone's mentor, and the Capone family moved out to the suburb of Cicero. They said, we don't want to live in Chicago anymore. It's... They're cleaning up the streets here. We want to live in a crappy city. <laughs> so we moved to Cicero. Ralph gets stopped for carrying a concealed weapon. He pays to get out and it gets dropped. He's later charged with voter fraud. Um, so, you know, that's that's cool. But that gets dropped. At another time, he's arrested at a soft drink parlor, which I have in quotes here. He was found in the back room with an attractive blonde woman. And him, his friend, and the blonde woman were charged with disorderly conduct. What they were doing to get disorderly <laughs> conduct, I don't know. The newspaper does not say. We'll leave was, that up to your imagination. Yes, Ralph was additionally charged with vagrancy, and his friend was carrying a concealed weapon. Remind me again, what is vagrancy? Vagrancy is like a, it's basically a made-up charge, where if they stop you and they ask you, what's your business being here? If you don't have a good answer, they arrest you. <laughs> Okay, I remember talking about that in a previous episode as yeah. well. It's most of most cities it's not legal anymore, but that used to be a common way to pick up suspicious people. Uh he was picked up for vagrancy another time. Um for a while he was uh, in Memphis, Tennessee because he was there for some racehorse business. Uh they picked him up there as part of an investigation. Uh what they asked him, I don't know. I imagine they just Got a question about any random thing because they saw Ralph Capone in town. So was at this point in time was Ralph known to be up to no good, or was he just getting picked up because he was Al Capone's brother? Well, there's there's some debate about that, and I'll and I'll touch on that in a moment. Um, but yeah, uh, I think he probably was more well known for being Al's brother. I don't think he was quite as bad as it would seem. Um, just you know. I mean, you did say, though, that he did get picked up for carrying a concealed weapon. Yeah, so yeah, he was yeah. walking, packing, so that... He was, yeah. 
That would suggest that he wasn't just a, you know, run in the mill kind of guy. Unless you know, maybe but if people are shooting at you, you got to have. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. <laughs> All right. In 1928, he marries his second wife. Her name is Valma, which is an awesome name. Uh, Ralph is arrested with four of his henchmen at the newly reopened Colosimo's Club. They are caught tossing their pistols under the table as police walk in, but the charges are later dismissed. Uh, he was caught a few more times carrying guns, but every time he beats the rap. Um, you know, it, you're not supposed to have a concealed weapon, but everybody does it. <laughs> in October 1929, Ralph is charged in Chicago for the worst crime imaginable. What is the worst crime imaginable? He doesn't pay his taxes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That low life. Yeah, bank <laughs> records showed that he had deposited $1.8 million in a bank account over five years. The government said, hey, that means you owe us $300,000 <laughs> in taxes. But Ralph claimed he was broke. And he goes, instead of $300,000, how about I pay you $1,000? And the government says, no. <laughs> <laughs> He was convicted and sentenced to three years in prison as well as a $10,000 fine. After he was sentenced, he told the press, I can't understand it. How did they get me? He appealed the conviction, so he remained free for a while. Based on based on the amount of money he has deposited over that period of time, I'm going to guess he was into something. Yeah. So, <laughs> In May 1930, while he's out uh, waiting for his case to be appealed, Two clubs in Cicero that are believed to be owned by Ralph are raided, the Cotton Club and the Greyhound Inn. They had warrants for Ralph and three others, but the wanted men were not found. The other men were Art Goldie, Mike Allegretti, known as Bon Bon, and a man who they didn't know his name, but he went by the nickname Rasputin, which is a pretty sweet name. <laughs> name yeah. Much better than Bottles. <laughs> The employees that were there were arrested, but none of them were notable and more or less released. And did you say what they were going after these guys for? I'm about to. Okay. The government alleged that Ralph was flying in booze from Windsor, Canada, six days a week in a plane. Um, Ralph denied that he owned the clubs, but uh, the judge said, well, we think you do, but either way, we're going to close them down. So he ordered them closed for being a public nuisance. So, yes, this is this is Prohibition times, and you cannot be flying in booze from Canada to sell at your club. There's a whole lot of not-okay parts of that. And I take it during Prohibition, was it still completely legal in Canada? No. <laughs> they, they, that just happened to be where he was sourcing it from. Then. Well, we've probably talked about this, but it's because you asked, it's a good refresher. There was Prohibition in the United States, and there was Prohibition in Canada. And they didn't, they didn't have the exact same rules, and they didn't happen at exactly the same time, but they were very similar in a lot of ways. But there, there's a big loophole in the Canadian prohibition, and that's that you can't sell booze to Canadians because that's not legal, it's prohibition, but they didn't shut down the breweries because the breweries were still allowed to export to Europe or whoever else wanted the booze. Um, so there's some big breweries in, and distilleries in Canada, like Seagram's is in Canada. 
And so this is the thing, like, it was perfectly legal for a Canadian company to sell to Americans, even though Americans were not legally allowed to buy <laughs> booze. So it really, it was the Americans that were the only ones breaking the law right. by all technicalities. Right. If you were an American and you showed up at Seagram's and you said, give me a bunch of cases of Seagram's 7, the Canadians could totally do it. If you had an American passport or driver's license or whatever, totally legal for them. But you can't be, you can't be bringing that into the U.S. That's a big no-no. So, so they can sell it. How did, did do you know? Did did they have a method of controlling this where they just didn't like start consuming it in Canada, or was it? I just, don't. Okay, I, I know practically nothing about Canadian prohibition, so I'm assuming that they had a lot of the same problems that we had here about enforcing it and you could probably get a drink fairly easily but i really don't know much about it okay okay shortly after this he's still out you know waiting for his appeal when the chicago crime commission is like this independent body that investigates and writes about crime and lets the people know they're kind of like the organization that's like releases a bunch of press releases about what's going on in chicago and what they think people should know about to put the pressure on police to get these people out of there well, anyway, they release the public enemy list. And in that list is 28 people who they think are public enemies, people who should be taken off the streets. Number one on that list, Al Capone. Number two on that list, Bugs Moran, the rival to Al Capone. And number three, Ralph Capone. Wow. Yeah. Ralph gets a big old number three on the list. So they thought he was something serious. His appeal doesn't go very well. And in November 1931, he gets sent to Leavenworth Prison in Kansas. Notably, he is the first Capone to spend time in federal prison. So he's got that. Huh? Yeah, I mean, Al, more famous, but uh, Al's not in prison yet. So Ralph beat him there. He was then transferred to McNeil Island Penitentiary, which is in Washington. And he finished out his sentence. He actually, believe it or not, served almost the entire sentence. Wow. Yes. Almost <laughs> the really, full three years. They really didn't like this guy. No. No, he didn't get out after six months or something. <laughs> they really did it. He gets out. His second wife, Velma, files for divorce on the grounds of cruelty. The divorce is granted. Ralph is next subpoenaed as a witness in the tax trial of John Torrio, who again... Was his brother's mentor. Uh, he is served the paperwork at his place of employment, the Waukesha Water Company. Oh, there it is. Yeah. This is his legitimate job, allegedly. Waukesha Water was accused of pushing its bottled water on taverns to purchase. An anonymous tavern owner said that he wasn't threatened by anyone from the company, but he considered purchasing their water a good idea just in case. <laughs> uh, in a future episode, we'll talk about uh, Waukesha water and Waukesha beer, because that will come back very soon. I mean, probably in the next five episodes. So he's working in Waukesha, but... This is actually a Chicago thing. It, the, the headquarters might be Waukesha, but he's working out of a Chicago. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. But here we go. Around 1940, and this is why it becomes relevant to this podcast, around 1940, Ralph moves out of Chicago 
to Mercer, Wisconsin, and he lives in a cabin called Recap Lodge on Little Martha Lake. Um, Mercer is way, 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 way up north. Um, it's kind of near Hurley. It's kind of near Manitowish Waters. It's really in the middle of nowhere. But if you're one of those people that likes the far north woods, you probably know where Mercer is. He managed Billy's Bar, uh, which was in the Rex Hotel. He was generally believed to be the owner, but he did not put his name on anything for tax reasons. And he often would sign things with a alias R.C. James or R.J. Capper. Very clever nicknames. His business partner was Walter Crumdick, who actually did put his name on things, but authorities believed that he was using Walter to hide his assets. I know. I've always heard that Al Capone had connections to Mercer, Wisconsin. Is it Ralph? Is Ralph that connection? Or did he? do you know, did he also have a place up in Mercer? Uh, it, it would be Ralph. Okay. There's, you know, there's a lot of rumors and a lot of stories about Al Capone owning places or going to play, visiting places throughout northern Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And most of those stories, I think, are BS or greatly exaggerated. But, uh, but Ralph absolutely did invite people to his lodge. So was his brother there? Yeah, probably. Were a lot of other questionable characters there? Yeah, probably. <laughs> so um, there's definitely there's some truth. There's some truth to it. But I don't. It, and you know, and if somebody knows for sure and they want to correct me, please do. I mean, I'm not perfect. But I don't think that Al himself really owned much of anything in northern Wisconsin. I mean, he had better things to do. Throughout the 1940s, Ralph supported Wisconsin Assemblyman William Yeschek, believing that Yeschek would work to repeal the law banning slot machines. He thought, well, if we can get the slot machine ban taken away, then I can run slot machines legally. Yeschek was also in the resort business in Lac de Flambeau, so they were also kind of buddies just for that reason. That repeal did not come to pass. Slot machines did not become legal. And Ralph, upset about it, allegedly financially backed his opponent in the next race, and Yeschek was defeated. Coincidentally, and I'm going to say this with, uh, you know, a little bit of a conspiracy theory voice, but I don't believe this. Coincidentally, Yeschek died years later when his car went off the road and hit a tree. <laughs> So they got him out of office and they're like, well, that just what three years later, they're like, that wasn't enough. We need to off him. Was he, was it a bad day? Did he swerve to miss a deer? <laughs> Probably something like, like that. that. <laughs> but just leaving it out there. <laughs> Sky fell out with Ralph Capone and later he hit a tree. <laughs> um, do I believe anything bad happened? No, I don't, but. Just putting, uh, of, just putting it out there. Out of curiosity, was there like an investigation or anything, or was I it have pretty, no idea? Okay, it, if there was, it wasn't like it made headlines Mid- or anything. anything. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that somebody like at least looked at it because you know that's not a natural death. But no, it wasn't like anything suspicious about it. Okay. In September 1950, Ralph was summoned to appear in front of the Kefauver Senate Committee that was being held in Chicago. Uh, the Kefauver Committee in the 1950-51 um, was investigating basically the mafia um, in interstate commerce. It was really the first time that the word mafia was like really passed around on the national level. 
Um, most people didn't use that word, but um, this was right when TV was getting getting around. People, a lot of people had TVs, and these things were put on TV, and people were fascinated by this. They would watch these people go to Congress and testify. And uh, today, I don't know if that would be exciting or not. <laughs> but when you've got like two TV channels watching mobsters testify in front of Congress, it's probably pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> when the papers to appear were served on him this time. Ralph was throwing a big party for Congressman Elvin Okonski. The Iron County District Attorney informed the marshal serving the papers that Capone, Ralph, was Okonski's right-hand man, and he, the DA, did not like Ralph very much. Ralph provided Kefauver nothing of value. Unlike our friend Sid Brodson, you may remember once upon a time in a previous episode, the attorney who became a gambler testified before the Kefauver Committee yep. and told them everything about how gambling works. Uh, Ralph was not like that. A detective with the Milwaukee Police Department, while off-duty, saw Ralph in Milwaukee in January 1958. They saw him at the Ambassador Hotel and followed him to the Milwaukee airport. While at the airport, Ralph removed a package from a locker. The detective thought, hmm, I wonder if that's dope. <laughs> But he was off duty, so he didn't do anything about it. <laughs> Ralph entered the Milwaukee Police Department Detective Bureau on July in July 1958. So this is a little bit later. He wanted to complain to the captains of the Detective Bureau about being surveilled by the police. He said, hey, my only income comes from cigarette vending machines. The company is in Brookfield, Illinois. I'm not doing anything here in Milwaukee. Why do you guys keep following me around every time I come to town? <laughs> With Ralph, when he visited the police, was Joe Krasnow, a Milwaukee gambler and tavern operator who they knew very well because he was one of the biggest gamblers in Milwaukee in the 1940s. Not the guy you want to have standing next to you when you're saying you're doing nothing wrong. <laughs> the police told Ralph, if you don't want a fatherly eye to follow you around, you should probably not go through Milwaukee the next time you're driving between Mercer and Chicago. <laughs> Two FBI agents were following Ralph shortly after this. Ralph and two other men arrived at the airport in an airplane that came from Ironwood, Michigan, which is right next to Hurley. They're basically the same city, but they're divided by a state border. At one o'clock in the afternoon, those men entered a taxi cab with their luggage they dropped their luggage off at the Ambassador Hotel. Apparently, this is the place that Ralph likes to stay. And then they took the cab to the Milwaukee County Stadium to watch a Milwaukee Braves game. <laughs> the FBI followed them all the way there, but the FBI did not watch the Braves game. So, whatever they did while there, whether they got hot dogs, I don't know. Nobody bothered to write that down. Ralph was back in Milwaukee again a couple months later, again, because he wanted to watch the Milwaukee Braves. <laughs> he was a big Braves fan, <laughs> and guess what? This is 1958, and the Braves are in the World Series. They're in the World Series against the New York Yankees, of all teams. So he's going to catch as many games of this series as he can catch. Bad news, everybody. The Braves lost. <laughs> The Yankees win the World Series. Ralph is back again. And he registers at the Ambassador Hotel, his preferred hotel, under the name R.C. James. 
along with a lady who is not his wife. The FBI believed that Ralph was just their visiting family, and he wasn't doing anything wrong, but they followed him anyway. <laughs> An informant in Milwaukee met Ralph and a couple other guys at Tony and Dottie's bar uh, in, in just outside of the city on Blue Mound, um, but had nothing interesting to report. They just enjoyed a dinner. The FBI asked the Milwaukee police about Ralph. He said, why does he keep coming back to Milwaukee? The police told them, well, Ralph, you know, he's a troubleshooter for the Chicago outfit. So maybe he's here because he's, you know, solving problems for Chicago. Or maybe he just really likes the Milwaukee Braves. <laughs> <laughs> you know how it is. It's one of the two, right? Yeah, yeah. So I want to clarify this because maybe I, I missed, but... Other than this, so far, other than the whole importing, first of all, the importing liquor in from Canada, do we know he did that or was he just suspected of doing that? He was, was never convicted of it, so it's not, I would say it's not proven. Okay. They had a pretty good idea, like they identified the pilot and everything, but it, he was never convicted, so we can't say 100% that it's true. And... He at this point, like where we're at now, is he is he operating gambling machines? Maybe. Okay, so we don't really know because, but we do know at some point in time he did operate gambling. Yeah. Machines, so, right? so just to be perfectly clear, um, the reason the reason we're doing this is on our timeline. We're up to around 1958 and the podcast timeline. Uh huh. And this is around the time when Ralph is making repeated trips to Milwaukee. So it's so that's why Ralph is coming up at this time. It's not that he's doing anything wrong. Like, like at this point, he's just an old guy who runs a bar in northern Wisconsin and comes down to Milwaukee for baseball games. But, you know, he's Ralph Capone. So every time he comes <laughs> to town, they're going to follow him around. And, I mean, they really do not have a – other than the fact that he's Al Capone's brother – they have no reason to follow this guy, right? No. I mean, has he even done anything wrong in Milwaukee? No. To, okay. Nothing. He's never been arrested He's, in Milwaukee. Okay. Yeah. The, interesting. Yeah. But they keep following him around. The FBI follows him. The police follow him. Um, they talk to their informants. And the informants like, yeah, he's a member of the mafia, which, you know, is true. But he's more or less retired at this point. But, you know, they still follow him around. And they say... And one of the informants says, you know, he's not even a rough guy. He's actually kind of a gentleman. So, <laughs> so you know, even the informants are like, you're wasting your time following this guy. <laughs> Ralph lives out his last years in Mercer. That's where he spends, I mean, a good 20, almost 30 years of his life living in Mercer at Billy's Bar in the Rex Hotel. He makes a lot of friends. The local newspaper knows who he is. He's often using these fake names, but... Like, it's not a big secret. Mm -hmm. And so they would occasionally, like, interview people and be like, hey, what's it like having Ralph Capone live in town? And every single person <laughs> like, he's was just like, a, yeah, he's a nice guy. guy. <laughs> he's friendly to have around. No one ever says anything bad about him. And, and that's a, the other thing. He never really gets in trouble for anything in Mercer either, correct? No. Okay. No, not at all. So, like, during Prohibition, he's, he's like, considered the number three worst guy in Chicago – but after he goes to prison for taxes, he comes out, he moves up north, and he's pretty cool. But despite the fact that he's pretty cool, the FBI and the police 
keep track of him for over 30 years. <laughs> he never does anything wrong, and no. they still are following him No, around. you do not want to be named Capone. It's, they don't give up. The story ends in 1974. Ralph dies at a nursing home in Hurley, Wisconsin. A very non-exciting death for a big Chicago gangster. Um, dies of heart failure from heart disease. Not surprising. I mean, he's not super old, but he's in his 70s. His funeral is held in Hurley, Wisconsin. Another brother, John, attends. Al is very dead by this time. Um, but John Capone is there. The district attorney of Iron County uh, attends. Angelo Fazio of Milwaukee is there. Um, and uh, for those who don't recall, um, one of the nastiest guys in Milwaukee is Louis Fazio, and Angelo is his brother. But Angelo, as far as I know, is basically just a restaurant owner, um, not really known for being a shady guy. Of these three, John Capone, Angelo Fazio, and the Iron County District Attorney, the worst of the three is the Iron County <laughs> District Attorney. <laughs> the man's name is Alex Ranieri. And within a decade of this funeral, uh, he goes from being the district attorney to being the county judge, and he gets convicted and sent to prison for running houses of prostitution. <laughs> um, was Ralph involved in any of that? There's no evidence of that. It's not really a big secret that, that Hurley, Wisconsin, has a very long history of a lot of prostitution um, for a very long time. But even though Ralph was... You know, hanging out in Mercer and Hurley, there's no evidence that he was involved in any of it, despite the fact that he was a mafia guy. So, is there any known reason why this district attorney would have been there? Like, do they, is there a connection between them? Be I know of no connection. My guess is it's like we, we see from the earlier parts of the story that, like, he's a pretty good financial backer of a lot of candidates. So maybe they were friends because Ralph would help him fund like his campaign or something. But there's no connection as far as them like doing anything shady or anything. Okay. And now repeatedly during this you refer to him as a gangster. Aww. So is is there which, evidence which is, you know, bad on me because he's not. He's an old retired guy, but but, but that's the stigma he keeps for the rest of his life. When he was in Chicago, do you think he was actually tied into the mafia, or was he j just Al Capone's brother? I think he was. It's, you know, it's it's hard to say because he's connected into the point where he's got this bottling operation. So, you know, he's got that. He's allegedly flying in booze. He's making millions of dollars. That's very true. That I mean, he's he's clearly doing something, but it's hard to say whether he's doing it by himself and Al doesn't care because Al's obviously not going to be like, don't compete with me. Mm -hmm. He's going to be like, you're my brother, do whatever. Or whether they were working together. together. Because Ralph is never really arrested with his brother or any of like the worst guys in Chicago. There's a couple guys who he's caught with, with when he's carrying these guns and stuff. But they're all fairly low-level guys. He's never, like, seen with, like, the big guys. Right. And it's reasonable to assume. I mean, his brother is running the mafia. He yeah. 
I mean, he's gonna come across these people unless, he, and it was apparent that he wasn't estranged from his brother or anything like that. No, so, they were perfectly friendly. Yeah, so I mean, he's gonna run into these people and you know probably be friendly with them, um, just by that relationship. While he might not have had anything to do with the mafia. Yeah, so. and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out a book plug here. Um, it's not one of my books, but um, there is a book by. Uh, Deirdre Capone, who is Ralph's granddaughter, and she has a book called Uncle Al Capone, because Al would be her great uncle. And um, even though I think some of what she says in there is she paints too nice of a picture of Al, she doesn't tend to believe a lot of like the worst stories about him. So I disagree with her on that. Um, it, she does have some really good stories in there um, about her grandfather, Ralph. And a lot of great photos. Mm -hmm. So if anybody wants to know more about Ralph, I mean, I strongly recommend it. I find her information on Al to be suspicious because when she met Al Capone, she was like five years old. So I don't, I don't think very highly of her opinion. No, no disrespect, Deirdre. I'm sorry. But, you know, she's getting most of that secondhand. So, but because Ralph lived so much longer, I, would tend to believe that she knew her grandfather a whole lot better. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So um, I get I get no money for that. But if you want, if you're interested in this topic, that's that's <laughs> the book to pick up. What's a cool story? And I I'm glad to hear the the Mercer connection. Like yeah. to get the details of the Mercer connection because I've always heard that for years. And, yeah, yeah, and. So I don't know if Mercer will come up again, but I guarantee you Hurley is going to come, come up, up again. again. Good, yeah. good. Hurley, yeah, we, can nice talk, place. we can talk about bear chasers. <laughs> you ever been to oh, bear, the, the bar? Been to, yeah, the bear chasers? <laughs> yeah, I've been to bear chasers, man. <laughs> it's a nice bar. It's a nice bar. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, uh, for those not familiar with Hurley, um, bear chasers is a bar. I don't even know if it's actually in Hurley. I don't think it is because it's just kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, but, like, you can take a boat up to it. Like it's it's a pretty cool bar because if you're like on the lake in Hurley, you take your boat and go to Bear Chase, and it's a super nice bar. It is. Like, it is very nice. Yeah. So that's our free plug for Bear, bear Chasers. chasers. <laughs> we will take donations yeah. or a sponsorship. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I don't think I have anything else for this episode. You got anything more on those notes? No, that's it for the notes. Yeah, th- this episode and probably the next few are going to be pretty straightforward. We're not going to have a lot of that convoluted stuff for a <laughs> while. Um, just a lot of little pieces kind of fleshed out. Um, this is a very loosely a Milwaukee story, but, you know, it, but I think it that's connects. A, I think that's a very good story because it, you know, it kind of brings together Chicago and Milwaukee and yeah, shows yeah. the overlap and and stuff like that. And everybody likes to hear about a Capone. Everybody likes the Capone so story. We, and so it's it's nice to, to hear how much time the FBI wastes following people <laughs> yeah. around. And you would have thought like year 15 or something, they would have said, maybe we are wasting our time and would just direct themselves to something else. Yeah. And yeah, it's very strange. And I'm curious, have you, I mean, I don't, have you like seen the FBI file to R- Ralph? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so like, like this is coming out of the FBI file. There wasn't something more that could have been in there that 
that would lead them to just keep following them that we wouldn't know about? Like, this isn't all pulled from just news articles or something? No, I mean, it's not one of the more active files. Like, they're not giving you weekly updates or anything, but they never close it. Like, a lot of times what happens is they open a file on somebody, they do an investigation, they find it's a waste of time, and they'll close it six months later. That's fairly common. Ralph, even though they never caught him doing anything, just, that file just kind of stayed open. <laughs> and that probably explains why he moved up to Mercer. Because sure. it was a place he could go to get away from that crap, you know? Yeah, that's true. I mean, because I'm pretty sure the FBI isn't going to follow somebody up to Mercer, Wisconsin. No, not typically. You know? No. And if they did, I mean, I think an FBI agent following somebody around in Mercer, Wisconsin would be pretty obvious. Because there's just nobody yeah. there. So I'm not sure how the FBI operates up there. I mean, we're getting a little off here. but uh, So, like, how the FBI works as far as, like, an office goes, their primary office is in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And then they have what's called resident agencies. So there's, like, a resident agency in Madison and in Kenosha. And they ha- I don't know if they still do. They probably still do. But they had one, like, in Appleton and Green Bay. And they're just these small, like, you know, strip mall offices where, like, two guys work there. Mm-hmm. But I have no idea. Like, maybe there's one in Wausau or something. But, yeah. but there's they don't have a guy, you know, up in the Northwoods. You would think that if they have one in Apple or had have or had one in Appleton, they mm. would probably have one in Wausau, too. Yeah, I would be willing to bet they have one in Wausau. But I'm, I'm guessing that's it. Unless that guy in Wausau is specifically called to go look at something. He's not driving up to the Michigan border. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got better things to do with his day. And and the other thing about this, too, is how did the FBI and the police catch wind? Like, if this guy was just going down to Milwaukee for a Braves game, yeah. how do they catch wind that he's in town so fast That's to a good be able question. to follow him around? That's a really good question. You know? I, I, do, I don't know. God, I'm- it almost makes you think, like, were they following them around in Mercer or something? I don't I don't think they were following them around in Mercer, but uh, you raise a good point. I mean, they, they seemed to find out pretty fast when he was in town. Yeah. I don't know. That's a good, good you question. You know, like if he was hanging out in town for a week, I could see him eventually catching wind of it. Yeah. But, but to... I mean, I don't know. My guess would be an informant. Like a lot of, a lot of... Again, we're going off here, but with the, with the FBI, they have like their regular informants. These are like guys who are criminals, but they also provide information and they get paid to do that. So pretty sweet deal. Um, but then they have also what are just called CIs, which is confidential informant, but it's not like the same thing as like a what we normally think of as an informant. And these are people that are just like placed, not placed, like the FBI doesn't put them there. But, like, say, for example, the guy who works the front desk at the Ambassador Hotel. If the FBI is like, hey, if anybody, like, that you know is, like, a suspicious dude comes in, give us a heads up. up. And they're not going to pay that guy for that. But that guy's going to be like, well, the FBI asked me to, and I want to be a good citizen, so I'll give him a call. Yeah, and that's a very good point. So they had a lot of people like that, people who were, like, receptionists at a doctor's office, things like that, where, you know— you wouldn't think of them as informants, but they were just these random people who would let you know when somebody was coming around. And it could be that he 
commonly whenever he went down to Milwaukee, he um, would visit somebody that, yeah. that the police had eyes on. So as soon as he went and visited that guy, they now knew, okay, he's in town right, or something like right. that. Right, and, that, so and I'm then, saying like the reason I use that example is every time he's staying in Milwaukee or he's staying at the Ambassador Hotel. Right. Yeah. So do I know that? No, absolutely I don't. But maybe that's how they know. Maybe sometimes he stays at the Fisker, and the guy at the Fisker doesn't bother to call well, the FBI. Yeah, yeah. So, like, how many more times was he in Milwaukee, and maybe right. they didn't even know because he didn't stay at the Ambassador, or he stayed with a friend or something right, like right, that. Right, right, exactly. Could very well be. Yeah, and but I, I don't know. And I also think... I mean, I recognize the ambassador, so I'm wondering if this is the ambassador has come up in other stories. So maybe that. No, well, maybe it did, but uh, but I I'll tell you why. You know what the ambassador is? Okay, why do I know what the ambassador? is? You ever been to the rave? Yeah, it's that's... across the street. Oh, so maybe it's okay. got big red lights that say okay. ambassador on top of the roof. Yeah. Okay. All right. So maybe <laughs> maybe it just like jumps into my head from that. But if you've been to the rave, you've seen it because it's got it's big thing. lights on the ceiling. Or not the ceiling, you know, the roof. <laughs> so, it, and it still exists, huh? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Maybe we should go stay there sometime. Maybe we should do a podcast from the ambassador. From the ambassador, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. We should have done this one from the ambassador. I've never been in the ambassador, but I have to guess it's not, not the greatest <laughs> hotel. We're going to have to look up and see how much it costs. No it. disrespect to the ambassador. <laughs> but that part of town is not the greatest. So, <clears throat> all right. Well, we will wrap this one up. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And Gavin, do your thing. Yeah. If anybody wants to reach out um, for whatever reason, if you have questions, comments, you think this was great, you think this was terrible, <laughs> um, you can email me, milwaukeemafia at gmail.com. You can go to milwaukeemafia.com. Best damn website for mafia information on the internet uh, with a very beautiful wiki that, that keeps growing. and uh, Or Facebook. You go to facebook.com slash milwaukeemafia, and that's updated a couple times a week. So lots of places you can find me. And if you want to find Eric, you go through me. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll be back. Don't forget about the Patreon. So we oh, will yes, be back with, an, with, <laughs> another, with a Patreon episode next week. So... Please, if you're not subscribed, jump over there and j- jump over to MilwaukeeMafia.com and subscribe. And otherwise, we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. <laughs>